We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to episode 443 of the Barcelona Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Dan Hilton, and joining me again is Domogoy Kostainchuk. Domogoy, let's start off with the absolute best take I heard after yesterday's game. That awful El Clasico that we watched means that Spanish football is indeed dead. Barcelona and Real Madrid <laughs> are both bad. So unfortunately for you and I and all the listeners, we actually care about Spanish football, so we have to talk about it. Now, the only thing that the only solace for Spanish football not being dead is that match that Real Madrid played against Liverpool. But now that they've lost to Barcelona, well, that trumps all of that, and we don't have to worry about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course. Uh, everyone knows that... Spanish football is just Barca and, and Real Madrid. That's it. There's mm-hmm. nothing else there. And and La Liga is anyway just just a two horse race. It's a rubbish league. So why even talk about? It? I'm not sure why I'm here anyway. Then, <laughs> well, good question. I, why are you here? I, I think one of the reasons why you in particular are here, Domagoy, is that I think after this match, what I want to do, the main idea would be, I want to try to answer why Madrid had all that possession and why Barca still had the better chances because I think. There is this idea that, oh, well, Barcelona were rubbish. That's why Real Madrid had so much more possession. Barcelona were missing players. But Madrid, yes, they had zero shots on goal for the mm. first time in a very long time. So th- there are a lot of little numbers and things that we're going to get through on the show to talk about. But I, I think most importantly, to go back to just the the feelings of it, right? I think you and I are very much more logical and analytical than, than others seem to be with, you know, the emotions of this kind of match about Clasico. But I find that I hate to do it, but I do say... Looking at the expectations going into it without Pedri, well, let's start it this way. Without Lewandowski and Dembele, I thought it was going to be rough to score a goal at all. But then without Pedri, I thought that it was going to be Blanco bloodbath. I really did. I thought it'd be 2 nothing or 3 nothing without Pedri or maybe 3-1 or 2 nothing. you know, that kind of score because Barcelona were not going to have any control on the match. Now, what I was correct about is that Barcelona, indeed, without Pedri, did not have any control over the match at all. But that said... They were they. There seemed to be a quote unquote system in place. There seemed to be quote unquote ideas in place, and to the point that sixty five percent possession for Real Madrid and thirty five percent for FC Barcelona is not merely individuals on Barca struggling to do X Y Z. Certainly, it's Real Madrid their game plan working in a sense to have possession and working to turn Barcelona over in advantageous spots on the field. Sure, but that seems thirty five percent to be much more on purpose, as if a low block was not something that Xavi and the team found themselves waking up into, and it was a shock to them, but that was essentially part of some kind of game plan. Yes, I would say that this is very much the the means justified the ends type of game. So, you know, it wasn't pretty, it wasn't what we're used to seeing from Barcelona, of course, and sure, it wasn't easy. But even more importantly, it worked. So it's not often that Barca win games solely down to their defense. I mean, yes, in the Pep Guardiola days, we had this high press that was very, very important, very effective. So it, it did bring success, but I, I don't think it was... Like this, you know, this digging deep, fighting and clawing their way, the way back to to victory. That's that's some, something. Well, I don't want to say it's new, but it's it's kind of surprising. But it's it's a good surprise. It was a good surprise. However, I, I I've been thinking about what Xavi said after the game. That quote when he said that Real Madrid was still favorites for the Copa. I know this could be just one of those things, you know, one of those cliche things to say. Coaches cannot do it all the time when they just before or after the game they kind of. They, they show respect to the other team, right? It's sort of a, something of an unwritten rule of sorts. Although, to, to be completely fair, Carlo Ancelotti had 
different <laughs> different ideas out of the game saying that Barca were lucky or I don't know, I'm not sure what exactly. But that's a different story. The point I'm trying to make is that I genuinely believe Xavi meant what he said last night. I'm aware that it could have a negative psychological impact on the team, but also serves as some sort of a warning, I would say. If we go into the second leg, or even the La Liga Classico, for example, playing like this, we're more than likely to kind of just still lose the games. Mm-hmm. Now, I know people will say, well, it's 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 a very hot topic. I know they will say, well, it's good to celebrate those wins. It's good when Barcelona can play badly and still win. And I, I yes, I do agree with that. You know, we dug deep, we kept fighting, we clawed our way back. But I'm I'm certain Xavi would rather, you know, he, I'm sure that he would rather have been in real shoes last night disregarding the result of course just being able to play the way they play so he would rather be the one attacking controlling the ball pressing high than you know just be cooped up in his in his penalty box and weathering the storm for almost 90 minutes the reason being it can this can work as a one-off you know it can work even occasionally throughout the season a couple of times but it's a very unstable unsustainable and and I would say sub-optimized way to win. Barca always want to be the protagonist, right? They need to be the protagonist because that's not only the best way to kind of score, but it's also the best way to prevent the opposition from scoring. People often tell me, well, it's risky to play out of the back or it's, it's risky to just press high all the time. And yes, it is kind of risky, but in my mind, the riskiest play Barca can make is to adopt those uncomfortable styles and bank on stopping the opposition rather than imposing themselves. To me, that's kind of the biggest risk you can take. When you don't play to your strengths, when you don't play, when you, you don't, you don't, you're the one adapting to the others, and when you're the one withering the storm for 90 minutes. This is a great one-off result, don't get me wrong. But if we go into the next leg playing like this again, regardless of the, the way the Real Madrid are playing, which is you know rubbish as well, let alone if we, we continue scrapping wins for the rest of the season, I feel like this could prove to be you know, a bit too much. So yes, I am happy for the win, but not happy with the means of getting there, which is you know the, the general consensus, I guess. If those means kind of persist longer than a sick, single game or maybe a couple of games across a full mm-hmm. season, you know, there will always be games where it just won't be your day or your, your night. And if you can win those games, that's you know what they say, that those games win you the titles. And that's true. But if it's a common theme and you, you're kind of hoping to survive a whole season or even you know just week upon week winning like that, you sadly got you know, another thing coming, I feel. Well, I, I think that I, I think you got a lot of things right there. And, and I also think that it is disappointing and almost frightening one of the themes after talking last week, especially after the Marinette match, that if the depth of your system is such a drop-off that by not having, and not even Lewandowski, by not having Dembele and not having Pedri, if the, if the absence of two players means that your entire system falls off a cliff, it's one thing to say that Pedri and Dembele, they are. They're probably top five in their positions and their jobs and their roles. Not necessarily saying Pedri of all the attacking midfielders or high right interiors in the world, he's top five or whatever, but saying that in the role and position and job that they're given, they are large reasons why Barcelona are leading La Liga. Numerically, the goals that they score, the chances that they create, the expected assists, expected goals, all those things that those two delivered to FC Barcelona. Then, of course, Lewandowski, the 15 goals that he scores is very helpful as well. So without those three, that your entire, again, system, game plan, whatever you want, it all falls apart without those three. That is a concern, and that continues to be a major concern. And, and I think I want to start with the positive because we're going to put a pin in that and the negative for Barcelona because if we're gonna, I didn't do Rafinha. I didn't do Ferran Torres in my five headlines yesterday, so I'm gonna, we're going to circle back to them at the end. But let's start with, again, what I think Barcelona did well because to that point, while Barcelona were not great, I agree, they were Really, I mean, they were trash. They were they were dumpster fire themselves in that match. I mean, they were they were sloppy. They were not putting combinations together. They were giving Barcelona, they were giving Real Madrid rather the ball back in their own half of the field, which is something that look at the last two three seasons. If they had done that, they would have certainly been the victim of a few goals there. But fortunately for them, one this one's simple, no analytics needed. Ron Araujo absolutely frustrated Vinicius Junior. I think. A big thing to me was personality is that as Vinny Jr. got more and more frustrated, he picks up that yellow that probably should have been in red on Frankie de Young. 
And as he was getting more and more irritated, it seems like Real Madrid took on his characteristics or his feelings and, and they got frustrated and they started falling down and getting frustrated and all that. And then Barcelona in their same way, yeah, they were complaining and falling down and getting frustrated as well. But it seemed like they took on the personality of Araujo in that matchup because Barcelona just, they stood pat, they stood pat, they stood calm. If anything, it was the same thing with Ter Stegen. They kind of took on what Ter Stegen was giving them, which was that he was solid, massive in the air. He didn't really have to do anything amazing. He didn't have any amazing save of that game. But that's because he was just so solid on the punch outs. There was no second opportunities. There was no 50-50 balls that were won in the penalty box. It was all just punched out, cleared, figured out, and things like that. And even Balde, who was worse earlier in El Clasico in the season, he was much more solid this time, doing the little things like because he's so left foot reliant, he would turn on the ball to make sure he could clear with his left foot, got around it a few times. Kunde as well, I mean, bouncing back in a really good way from what was a little worrying spell at center back there, especially against Manchester United in the first leg, winds up figuring things out. And then Alonso, for as much as I have dragged Marcus Alonso and for as much as he has not been good this season, this was arguably the best game of the year for him in a Barcelona jersey. I have the numbers here, 10 clearances, eight headed clearances, eight ball recoveries, four or five on his aerial duels. And I think it was a question whether or not you start Eric Garcia or Alonso. I could have easily felt an argument for Eric Garcia because I think with him in tow, I think Barcelona take their 35% possession and it goes to 45%. But maybe that zero on the scoreboard doesn't stay if it's Eric Garcia in a way that it was Alonso. Alonso is so important. I think most importantly for me, tactically, we talk about the Arajo Vinny Jr. thing because I think that was the key to the game, certainly. Stop Arajo being on that right side and stopping him, hugely important. And not, it wasn't just Arajo, too. I, I'm going to give you the opportunity to talk about everybody because De Jong and Busquets were a huge part of that. And we can speak about that you know, after this as well. But their ability to communicate and kind of hand him off as that second half adjusted and Vinny came more to the middle, the way that Busquets and De Jong would drop even deeper. I mean, that's why Barcelona, their possession was worse in the second half because the adjustment that Ancelotti made was to bring Vinny Jr. to the middle. And while he did not have as much space to operate, you know, he's not going at you and dribbling in a 1v1 situation. Ancelotti was banking on him being a little more comfortable in the middle, away from Araujo. Again, he wasn't afraid of him, but just changing things up of what wasn't working, he was hoping that there'd be little combinations that were going to make it work in that middle. But it didn't happen because De Jong and Busquets, not say handled him, but they handed him off quite well and closed down that space quickly and cleared him off. Meanwhile, that meant that Kunde and Alonso had to get Benzema right. And they did. I, I felt like nobody talked about Benzema after that game. And if I'm a Real Madrid fan, that would have been my major concern is that somehow Benzema, you got, I mean, you got completely stopped by Marcus Alonso. And I, I think it's a little intangibles like communication that were so impressive to me. Like that, that defense only holds firm if Araujo is speaking constantly. It's a constant communication with handing off Manny Jr. to De Jong and Busquets. And if Kunde and Alonso and Ter Stegen are constantly aware of Benzema's positioning. I mean, same thing with Fede Valverde too, when he would come inside. If Balde and Alonso are not totally on their game with Busquets in tow to figure out, hey, where is Valverde? And then where is that space opening up for Carvajal? Who's going to go out to the man? You know, those crosses too. Real Madrid crossed a million times, sure. But there was always a Barcelona player, unlike Almeria, there was constantly a Barcelona player up in their grill and making sure that those crosses did not get off to any advantageous position, or more importantly, they were funneling everything to Ter Stegen's near post, and he was in the proper position every time, stepped out on his line where he needed to be to cut out every single low cross that came in near his goal. And so defensively, while you could say, oh, Real Madrid were toothless, zero shots on target, you know, they, they had no ideas. Sure, they had no ideas, no rhythm. They were taking way too long on the ball, and that meant everything was going slowly, that being for Real Madrid, sure. But I think Barcelona were also doing all they needed to do to make sure those things happened. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yes, I would. I would definitely agree with all of that. It's 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 weird, right? That the psychology of the the whole thing when you when you have leaders on the pitch uh, for Barca, that was definitely Araujo because they were defending most of the time. So obviously, the defender, your best defender, is always going to be your quote-unquote captain, not officially, but, you know, just the leader in performance. Uh, so they kind of got their characteristics off of Araujo and, and Real Madrid being the protagonist, being the, the attacking team, they they kind of felt the same way as, as Vinicius or Benzema. One was invisible and barely even impacted the game, and the other one was visibly frustrated because he just couldn't get a break. But, yeah, this is very much just the case of kind of controlling the space rather than controlling the ball. And even even though you don't have possession of the ball, it's not you. So it's not you who, who's controlling the game. But if you control the space where the opposition moves and the, the way they attack, it's indeed you who, who's controlling the game overall. Of course, this is this was a collective effort as a whole, as, as you mentioned. But when you look at the way this team defends when Araujo and Kunde are available, for example, Barcelona's defensive records immediately start making more sense. And so I'm not trying to undermine Marcos Alonso, who, as you said, was immense. And Ter Stegen was also kind of the linchpin. He was a best man in possession as well. But, you know, seeing Alonso over Eric Garcia, this this is one of those decisions that at first doesn't sit right with you, but then it was vindicated. You know, Xavi did get it right. You know, adding that extra layer of experience, extra layer of physicality, perhaps, and sacrificing the in-possession uh, attributes. Because... How much more can Barca do with extra 10% of possession? Probably not much. But how much did Alonso contribute defensively off the ball as compared to what Eric Garcia might have done? You know, it's it's just one of those things. But I do feel like Araujo and Kunde, alongside Ter Stegen, of course, carry the most burden in, in most games that we would kind of defend well. And Barca's deep block was very good, as you said. It was compact. That was the thing. And And this is something that I often talk about Barca would rather be pressing high because they're not really comfortable dropping deep inside of their own half and just being there for the full 90 minutes and, and relying on, on having good defenders because that's you know Barca as a, as a team can can defend well you know as a collective but they, they're not exactly made out of excellent or maybe world-class defenders individual defenders that's that's rarely the case but now you have Araujo and Kunde for example who are world-class individual defenders but, you know, just being compact, that's the big thing because that minimizes the flaws of players like Busquets or Alonso because, you know, when are they at the most vulnerable when they have to cover huge stretches of the yeah. pitch? And it kind of emphasizes their strengths, in which is reading the game and, and reacting to it and communicating. So Barca were very flexible in switching structures depending on the height of their the block and the intensity of the block. And we're, again, very comfortable just dominating the area in front of the box or the whole box itself. Kunde was first to every single ball in that box, whether that was an aerial ball or on the, sorry, on the ground. It, was, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter because he was the first one to get it. Um, we may have lacked intensity and cohesion on the ball, but out of possession, everyone seemed to be on the same page for most of the 90 minutes. And that's the impressive thing for me, just now losing that focus. And yes, we can talk about Real Madrid not being exactly on it and not being that great on the ball either. But it's, I mean, this is very much the case of Barca just being extremely, extremely committed and extremely on the same page. It's it's a it's a collective thing with with individual brilliance kind of sprinkled across the pitch. That's and, and that that matters in these situations. And I feel like 
this is a huge step towards, you know, it's it might be a one-off, as I said, it better be one-off because I don't think we can sustain this. I don't think we can play this week in, week out and expect the same performance to be carried over to the next game, the next game. I don't think that's possible or, or even desirable from Xavi or anyone on that team. But to be able to go through these games, because these games will always happen, you will always have games where you won't have control, when you when the opposition will have the momentum, they'll have the crowd, and you have these situations where you have half of the team injured and you, you won't have your best players available. But in those nights, that's what matters, you know, just digging deep and, and, and weathering the storm and and being as a collective compact unit, it it just it just worked. And 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 I'm not saying it, it should be it should be practiced every week because that's you know it's the opposite of that. But when it does happen, and it should happen, you know, rarely, but when it does happen, to be able to execute on it like this, it's it's a it's a big positive in my book. Well, I feel I feel like again, another concern is that without Pedri, there the press resistant nature or we'll say the high press of Barcelona was, you know, lacking. It was that Barcelona were having a, a hard time turning Real Madrid over in their third of the field. So if you're taking the high press, not even the possession, but if you're taking the high press aspect of Barca's game away from them and you're pinning them back in their own half, that is, again, not sustainable in any way. That said, with Luka Modric dropping in a bit deeper, he is a superb, still very elite at breaking through a press. So those passing combinations with, I mean, Tony Cruz was poor and Barcelona were doing a similar thing to Tony Cruz that they wanted to do to Busquets. And that is basically take him out of the game by cutting off all the space that he had to pass or to deliver a final ball or to create anything. I mean, can you think of a, a pass or a ball that Tony Cruz had that, that was impactful in any way? Not really. He was just kind of recycling possession from side to side for Real Madrid and didn't have much of an impact on the game other than, again, helping Luka Modric, who in the second half was dropping even deeper. Because I think that was also a big key to this game, too, where for Busquets, he was uncharacteristically poor on the ball, which is, again, why, I mean, this is the shocking number here, that in his entire career, 35% possession in official match is Barca's lowest possession since Guardiola took over in 2008. 861 official matches. And if you're counting at home, that is Sergio Busquets' entire Barcelona first-team career since the last time that they had possession that low. So, I mean, that is an incredible number. And one of the reasons why, again, that happened is that I think Barcelona, especially in the first five minutes, were kind of punched in the mouth by the fact that Luka Modric was man-marking Busquets on their press, that being Real Madrid's press, and trying to turn and succeeding in turning Barcelona over quickly. But then because Busquets wasn't man-marking Modric in that setup, Modric should be the free man. And that's what made Modric so dangerous in that first half. But again, because Barcelona were so willing to, to, to be compact in that low block, as you said, and so organized, Modric, you could tell the team, that being Real Madrid, was getting more and more frustrated. And so Modric would drop deeper in the second half. And as we know from the years with Messi, really those last like two years, if you can convince that the dynamic playmaker, the guy who really has the best final ball, if you could get that guy to drop in in between those center backs to collect the ball, you've kind of done your job, right? And, and now you're saying, hey, Danny Carvajal, are you going to be the guy to beat us today? No, he's not. <laughs> and he wasn't. And so if you can make Danny Hall, Carvajal be the one to deliver the final ball instead of Luka Modric, you've kind of done your job. The second half, too, the adjustment that Xavi made was to have Busquets actually go farther forward even and to defend Modric farther forward. And that meant that Kessie in behind and that being De Young in behind, they had to get it all right. And I think that does perfectly lead me to talking about the young, because while the team, the first five minutes was horrifying, of course, Barcelona, I don't think they had the ball in Madrid's half of the field in the first five minutes. And I was like, through the first five minutes, I was like, okay, this is exactly how this is going to go. And Barcelona in a world of trouble. But in the case of Frankie de Young, they, that being his teammates, I think Kessie had one, Balde had a few, and Alonso, they were leading, they were leaving him out to dry. Like they, there were a ton of passes that, as we talk about, it's not a matter of the, did the pass get to him. It's the quality of the pass that you left your teammate with. And they would give him a ball. It's not that he did anything wrong. It's not that he didn't deliver, uh, I mean, receive it well. It's that it'd be a foot or two to his left or right, and he has to slide in just to keep possession or to get it out of bounds or, or Real Madrid are going to be off to the races. And so his teammates did not put him in a spot to succeed. But once they, not say that they did, but once he seemed to settle down a little bit, once he was a little more comfortable receiving the ball from his teammates and things like that, it seemed like everything worked. And, you know, I thought De Young was my man of the match. As much as Araujo and Kunde, and I think the, to me, the defense was very collective. 
But for De Jong, I think Barcelona, they don't even have 35% possession without him. I think without De Jong, they have 20% possession or 22% possession because of how important he was in retaining possession yesterday. I mean, even the three ball recoveries, three interceptions, three of three of his tackles won. He was two of two successful on his dribbles, two of three in his accurate long balls. Like the rare opportunities and moments that Barcelona relieved any bit of pressure. I thought that, you know, there were moments that Barcelona just had to take a breath and get out of their own half. And so often, so many times, that was only because of Frankie de Jong. And then a last note here I said in the five headlines about Busquets, by the way, he now has more El Clasico's, 46, than Ramos and Messi. And he takes that being the record from Paco Gente of Real Madrid for having won 22 of them. So Busquets has been a part of more El Clasico wins than any other player in history. So as much as the last few seasons have really frustrated him in the twilight of his career, and again, we're now still seeing new things with him. <laughs> it's like it's 2008 all over again, and Sergio Busquets and Barcelona don't have possession. But Busquets is, you know, he's a legend of the club. There it is. I mean, yes. What else can you say? I mean, I... You you can you know you can you can criticize him all you want you know everyone does and and most of the time nowadays unfortunately that's you know it's it's warranted you know Busquets it's he's not the the player that he used to be we have to say that uh, but that doesn't take away from the the whole legacy that he has and but yeah that's 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 I guess that's a topic for another time but on the uh, Barcelona in possession and Frankie de Jong, I think, well, it was always going to be difficult to keep the ball against this high press of Real Madrid. You know, the crowd behind them, of course, you have these injuries and absences of certain players. And just, that just made, just, just made it worse. Sorry, I, I can't speak. The double pivot of Cassie and Busquets also isn't really the ideal press resistant tool to begin with. But we did have some mechanisms to escape the press, you know, mainly accessing the free men on the flanks or just using Ferran Torres as this sort of a target man or just a player to lay off the ball into space uh, through Ter Stegen, of course, and his long balls. The issue, of course, here is that Araujo isn't really the optimal progression tool here. And at times, I feel like Real Madrid kind of purposefully left him open and just let him go and run with the ball. And one thing about Araujo is that he has this running power he has this athleticism he has this progressiveness in him that he, he can actually do this quite well but then it's it's kind of inevitable that he passes himself into the abyss sort of he just makes that one mistake um every every so often and Barcelona's possession and that meant that Vinicius was left all alone on the other side of the pitch because his marker Araujo was you know bursting forward with the ball so if, in that case, if Madrid kind of get the transitions right, if they can transition quickly enough upon recovering possession, you, ha you have this very dangerous, very dangerous situation on the other side of the pitch. And of course, Torres also had had some issues in the game. He, they had, I think, the idea was to kind of lure Rudiger out. So if Torres drops, he pulls Rudiger out, and then Rafinha can kind of burst into that space. And Barca can play the ball, the ball over the top into Rafinha and into into the open space behind Real Madrid's def uh, defensive line. But Torres was often very tightly marked and out muscled in those duels, so that didn't really work. And Rafinha would often have to drop so deep; he was essentially a right wing back of sorts. And when you're so deep, it's very difficult for you to be then this efficient functioning outlet for for your team. So it gets difficult to cover the, the entirety of the pitch, you know, from defense to attack and sustain the transition pace, phase all by yourself. And then this is where we come to the young, actually, as you said, it wasn't really Rafinha who was this outlet, this best outlet that Barca had. It was actually the young and, and to a certain extent it was Balde too. Both of them are excellent uh, at progressive running. We know that. And Real Madrid were actually not as compact despite their intensity and despite their aggressiveness uh, in, in pressing. So instead of being, instead of banking on those transitions on the, through, the, through the flanks and through sheer pace, Barca kind of used Frankie's straight line running power to blitz through M M Real's uh, midfield, mid middle of the pitch. And they progressed the play that way. So it, it, you know, he was outstanding. I think he was good both on and off the ball, as you said. And I don't think it, it brought us control that much, but it gave us moments to hurt Real Madrid and gave us moments to kind of breathe. But I'm, what, what, I, what I am more worried about is when we do have possession and we do kind of manage to find that calm and build up from the back and all that stuff, we get very sloppy and, and make unforced errors. That's, this is why you mentioned as well, I guess. And it's one thing 
one thing that those mistakes come from, I don't know, unbalanced structures that don't that don't really connect well across the pitch. But that's not often the case on the Xavi, I feel. I think I feel the structure is mostly solid and, and compact. And the fact is we're missing five yard passes more often than not, and we're giving up possession possession cheaply. And this isn't really an isolated case, and it's not just a, a an Araujo problem, for example. Yes, yes, Real Madrid would leave him open and kind of they were kind of trying to bank on him making that mistake. But it's not just him. It's it's players that you wouldn't really expect making those mistakes. As I said, it could be a bad day at the office, of course, but that day needs to remain exactly that, just one day singular. So I'm I'm kind of eager to see how Xavi fixes because like how how he works on that because of, of course he can he can tell players what to do and how to move and where to position themselves, but he can't really he's not really this puppet master that kind of pulls pulls all the all the you know on the levers in in, in the back line and and he kind of he can't really control the players. As much as he can give him, you know, he can give him instructions, of course, but he's not exactly this <laughs> this omnipotent power behind it that he, that, you know, you know what I mean. So it's it's kind of the case of how does he instill calmness and and, and kind of get their heads right back into it. This is where the Chavi that the man manager comes into place, not just Chavi, the coach who will teach them the tactical nuances of, of, of the structure, who will teach them how to move and how to how to position themselves. It's also the, the Chavi, Chavi the man manager who has to the, the, be the voice to put them back into the into it and put their heads straight in in, in a sense. Yeah, I think we definitely can always have a conversation about the individual over the system, right? Of the twenty four times that Vinny Jr lost the ball. Some of those directly go to the individual brilliance of Araujo defending. And then again, some of those go to, as I spoke about, the system that Xavi did put in place. So Xavi does get some credit for having his ideas come to fruition by having his back line be in the right spots to take or to turn Vinny Jr. over. Again, also giving credit individually to Araujo. So that winds up being both of those things. And I think interesting thing about Gabi yesterday Gabi individually, we always give him credit for, I mean, just being a complete lunatic, fouling, getting fouled, just kind of making that game what it was. If that game's going to be not even sloppy, but if that game's going to be the fight that it was, you could tell when we talk about personalities prevailing, I mean, Barcelona were like, okay, seems like Xavi's a little riled, so riled up. So we're all going to be that riled up. <laughs> we're all going to defend him and go and go crazy. And But as much as it was like the individual thing that Gabi is going to be, I also thought it interesting that system-wise, Xavi put him as a more traditional winger in a 4-3-3 because to get out of that pressure, you can't have just another midfielder in the middle of the field, especially if they're going to high press, you need outlets. And I thought Gabi yesterday, not as in a traditional winger winger, like because it was Balde who get forward, but to have Gabi kind of set up as a left winger in, in defending, that being in a 4-3-3 as opposed to completely in a low block or whatever, or 4-4-2. It was more so he would drop in as that that low man on the left side if Balde got forward and he would try to push forward as far as he could to try to pin back Carvajal Hall as well, um, which was really interesting because we know he's not going to hold up play there on the left wing or go, any, go at anybody in a 1v1 situation. So it was kind of like waiting for Balde to come forward. So I thought that was a Xavi's attempt at trying to create a little bit of width if he could, right? Because Barcelona weren't really attacking in a 3-2-5. They, again, were attacking in a 4-3-3 which also puts a lot of onus. And you mentioned Torres and Rafinha. And the response after the game for individual players was really only negative, I think, at those two individuals. Because the issues and the problems that they had individually in 1v1 situations were extrapolated because of the few opportunities they had. Like I have in my notes here, 19th minute was the first time that Torres actually really got any part of the ball. It was the only time, like I couldn't blame him for anything until the 19th minute when his first opportunity he had to have any even moment on the ball. Again, Kunde, he misses, this is interesting too, because Kunde misses the long transitional diagonal ball out to Rafinha. And you can see Rafinha put his arms up and say, I mean, I was open. Why, why did you hit that to me? Instead, he gets a line breaking pass through the midfield to Torres. Torres gets onto the ball for the first time in the game, but then he takes way too long off on it. It was as if he had said, Oh, finally, the ball is here. I have it. <laughs> you know, and then he winds up taking too long with it. And the first time he gets an actual more than one touch, the ball's gone because two or three players from Real Madrid just circle him, take it away from him. And then he's left going, oh, no, I lost the ball and frustrated himself. And then you go forward, I think, was it the 61st minute? Rafinha gets stripped by Camavinga when Torres 
plays his third good ball of the day or the second good ball of the day through to him and Barcelona don't get a chance. And my frustration in that moment, and this is why I was frustrated with Rafinha yesterday, it's not that Rafinha would give the ball away. It's that Barcelona, as I said before about De Young, Barcelona had eight seconds to breathe or five seconds to breathe and Rafinha loses in a 1v1 situation in, uh, I mean, 75% of the field, not even at the corner flag, but he 75% of, on, of the field has it taken away in a 1v1 situation like by Kamavinga. It's one thing to have them outnumber you and tr- and slide over in transition and you can't get, you're, you're stuck on the sideline and there's two Real Madrid fl- players taking the ball from you. Losing the ball in that situation is one thing because you're being asked to do m- probably more than you're comfortable doing. But by going right at Kamavinga and losing the ball when he was transitioning to left back, I mean, two minutes later, even he dribbles the ball out of bounds. So uh, that means your teammates are consistently trying to win the ball back for you if you can't win those situations. And that's where that frustration came in. And then in in the case of Torres as well, where in the middle, it didn't make sense. It didn't work for him. And then he's pushed out to the right wing and it makes a lot more sense. And you see that, okay, finally, Baron Torres, it felt like he found his feet. I mean, even the best combination that those two had was, well, it should have been a better combination. Rafinha, that late cross, his last touch of the game, that cross that was intended for Torres, he just hits it a bit too hard and it's a bit too close to Courtois. But Torres was in on goal. He was onside and Rafinha delivers a better ball. Barcelona up 2-0 in that game. Another argument I want to make, I know we, I'm going to let you talk about the goal actually because I want to talk about the other non-goal. And Ansu was discredited for blocking Kessie's second shot that should have been 2-0. But I thought Ansu was actually pretty fine. I had no issues. People said, oh, throw on Anjo Alahan or a younger player, you know, Astanas Pedrola, because he could do on the left wing and open up that space and, and be dangerous. But no, like late in that game, it was all about it being in that low block. It was all about defending for your life. And it was all about getting home with that one nothing. Yeah, if you scored a second goal, great. But it was all about taking that one nothing into that, the second leg. And Ansu Fati's defensive composure, that's what I want to say, composure in that second half when he came on was important to closing out that game. And on that Kessie almost second goal as well, not only did Rudiger push him in the way, <laughs> like you watch two hands on the back of Ansu pushing him in the way of Kessie's shot. So fair play by, by Rudiger to have that, that wherewithal of knowing what was coming. But I thought Ansu pulled Rudiger deep into his own half to allow that space for Kessie to run into. We start there. And then that ball from Torres was fantastic as well. And so for Ansu to kind of been in that spot, if it hits him right, it goes off him and it's a goal anyway. And again, like if Rudiger doesn't push him, he was trying to set up at the near post, not at the far post where it's which where the shot landed. So for, for Ansu, I just wanted to defend him. People can say, oh, you know, Ansu didn't do anything. I don't think Ansu was given anything to do because Barcelona were defending even more so for their lives in the last 10 minutes. But, you know, I, I think it's again, fair play to Rudiger to kind of push him in, in, in the wrong spot. So I was less concerned about Ansu than I was more frustrated at Torres in the middle and Rafinha out to the right. Because at some point, it's true. Like I feel like every criticism of them is about their price tag. And everybody I bring on, every new person who doesn't listen to the podcast, who I, you know, I'm not saying my guests don't listen to the show, but sometimes my <laughs> guests don't listen to the show. And so the one thing they always bring up is, hey, you know, it's fine if he was 20 million or 15 million or came from the academy or whatever. But because Torres was 55 million and because Rafinha was what, 62 million when all was said and done. Because of those price tags, you have to expect them to be better in 1v1 situations. And you have to expect them to be better, I mean, figuring something out offensively. And so I, I, I definitely hear the criticism of those two players in that game. But for me, there's always a difference between criticism of a match like that and individual matches that they've had this year and get them out of my club because I go back to Rafinha over and over again. He has these matches and you have the, the call to arms to say, Hey, if Barcelona need to shed salary, they've got to get rid of Rafinha. And I've said it before, if there's a good offer and the offer is high enough, then sure. Sell Rafinha on. But when it comes to the depth up top, I mean, he had had the most goal contributions of anybody. What was it from the middle of January to the middle of February, he had more goal contributions for Barcelona than anybody else. And so I know it looks in 1v1 situations like he can let you down over and over again. He defends for his life. He works hard defensively, especially when Barcelona are pinned back as this, this, this fullback, basically, is a wide fullback more than he does as a winger. And then he does contribute to goals, even though that part in the middle seems to be really, really frustrating. And I do hear that. And so I do think there's a difference between he played poorly or when he plays poorly, we criticize him fairly and saying, hey, 
he's not good enough to be at FC Barcelona. Sell him on, get him out of my club because of his price tag. I think I think there's there's room in the middle to operate in. I just feel crazy having to only operate on the margins. Yeah, it is. I think that's always kind of the case with Barcelona because that's the price of success, right? If you're going to play for a club like Barca, of course, you have to be able to handle not just you know on the pitch stuff, but also off the pitch stuff. There's always constant pressure to perform. You always have to be at your very best because, you know, quite frankly, even though Barca are kind of still down, they're not the force that they used to be, but they're still, it's still kind of the case that only a handful of players would be, you know, at the required level to be this, you know, the 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 Barca icons and be the, the Barca players that we kind of expect to see in the squad, right? And Rafinha is very much a player who who has a quality when used in the right environment. It's all about the environment because how you use a certain player matters a lot. You can see the way that Ferran Torres performs better on on the left or on the right or down the middle, depending on the environment as well. I feel I feel like that's that's a big thing, and and this is also where kind of squad planning that comes into play, right? And because I, I've talked about this a lot in my, in my reactionary um, piece on on Barca football after the game, I feel like you know Charlie's initial idea was very different for, to the one we're seeing right now. So you know at the beginning you had this system that was adamant on on, on having two natural wide wingers on the flanks who would provide width, who would provide pace and penetration. So as a result, Barca were very direct, very transition heavy. And then the recruitment process kind of followed the same line of thought. That's why you have the Rafinhas and the Ferran Torreses even who can nudge the scouting in that same direction. But along came this box midfield system. And, and this isn't something that Xavi kind of just thought into existence all of a sudden. It's, it's a bit, it's a tried and tested blueprint of some of the, uh, Europe's elite, if you will, like, you know, Arteta or Pep Guardiola. They all use it to a certain extent. Uh, they use it slightly different, of course, but it's a shape that kind of enables easier progression and defensive and, and offensive control since, you know, it, it's easier to stay compact in that shape. Mm-hmm. But. It's it's also it's a good structure structure for Barca's strongest eleven. I feel you know that eleven includes Pedri and Gavi and Dembele, for example, and Pedri and Gavi in particular in those interior roles. And you know, or, well, initially one of them can be the false winger, of course, but then they drop in in field. But when you remove those players or even just one of them, this is what you kind of alluded to before. The whole system kind of dwindles; it, it, the quality inevitably drops. And you kind of lose power here. You you cannot really expect or should not expect to have the same results with I don't Cassier and Sergio Roberto and even Rafinha to a certain extent, as opposed to having Pedri, Gavi, and Dembele. And that's not to say that these players like the Cassier and Roberto they don't have their use. They certainly have, and Xavi knows this. But it's different and it's far more situational. I feel. Uh, but now that Xavi has changed the system to this box midfield he finds the squad a bit lacking sometimes and you know just an injury or two maybe a suspension can easily disrupt uh the whole balance of the structure and that can signal an error in recruitment because you know suddenly the team lacks the technical quality or the right profiles to execute this successfully beyond the 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 strongest 11 the gala 11 whatever you want to call it so i I said that it's sub-optimized at best because you know, it can work, but not as well as your uh, obviously your strongest eleven would 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 give you. But at worst, it's it's kind of lacking. You know, it's and this is for example when when people would start shouting, "Oh, what about Pablo Torre?" For example, but it's a very unforgiving situation for Xavi, if you ask me. I mean, had he played someone like Pablo Torre, and Torre was you know, throw into the fire like that, chances are he would buckle under the pressure and everyone would blame Xavi afterwards. You know, why would why would he do that to a youngster like that? But if the opposite happened, sure, you know, Torre would be highly praised and Xavi would perhaps be hailed as this, you know, brave genius or something. But that's the type of risk that you should try and avoid, I feel like, in a game like a classical, and especially, you know, given the circumstances. Besides, I don't think that Torre, as talented as he, as he is, would turn this game completely around had he been picked. You know, it would just be likely him defending just like everyone else. But, you know, as the Alonso over Eric situation kind of proves, sometimes it's good to have more experience and more physical presence in these situations. I've kind of went off topic here now, but <laughs> this is kind of... Well, I, feel, I, feel, I, mean, I, think, I think for Xavi, I think the, the the youngster to be used yesterday would have been Marcosado, actually, would have been the, mm. the defensive player who actually, for as poorly as the... Barcelona U19s crashed out of the UEFA Youth League. 
the day before, Casado was one of the few bright spots in that game, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. So I think Casado may have had a role to play as a de- de- mm-hmm. not only defensive midfield, but he's also 21. So he's a little bit, you know, let's say a little more seasoned, but he is one of the quote unquote veterans for Barcelona B. So that would have been his kind of role, his kind of job, though he is still very green. And as we talked about before, his ceiling is a little less than what you'd expect from some of the other players from that UEFA Youth League, like a Lamini Mall or one of those other, okay. uh, we'll say, you know, high level prospects or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I think almost leading to the goal, too, it's interesting because I feel like Kessie was a huge part of scoring the goal. It didn't go to him. It was an own goal for Militao, sure. But it's interesting that we didn't really talk about Kessie. And as I'm, I'm, I'm trying to take notes and I'm like trying to watch him on the field. I'm like, where is he? What is he doing? <laughs> what is happening with Kessie? And I think the level of Kessie, where he is, is just about what he's going to do as a contributor for FC Barcelona. And that is what makes, again, the concern that if you have an opportunity to swap out in the, in the summertime, Kessie for 15, 20 million euros, and you find that Bernardo Silva for 45 million or something like that, right? Because of his age and the state of his contract, that you find a way to get him for 45 million. Then obviously you take that. You take 20, 20 million and you say, hey, that's what we're in theory paying by selling Kessie on. And I know, yes, the financial issues, 200 million euros is what Tebas was saying. And I know Tebas has things to say every single week. Sure. I think, you know, I think of that meme, that X-Men Wolverine meme, looking at the picture, right? The old character Morph, that Bernardo Silva, there's a reason why all summer long, every day we heard, oh, Bernardo Silva, Xavi wants him. The the board is pushing for him. Bernardo Silva is fighting to get to Barcelona. There's a reason why Bernardo Silva was the key, it seemed, to the summertime to complete the infinity gauntlet that Barcelona wanted with their transfer stuff. There's a reason for that. And that is because, again, going all the way back, you know, bring a full circle on this, that Barcelona survives a match like this without Pedri, but they don't survive, well, quote unquote, have to suffer the way they did if Bernardo Silva is available. And that said, if Bernardo Silva was available or to, for, for a transfer over the summertime, Kessie would have been gone in January. Like th- that's how those moving pieces work. So then you're going through this, you know, the domino effect of then if Kessie is sold in the summertime, and Barcelona still struggle with Bernardo Silva in tow today or yesterday. Does Barcelona even score that goal because of how important Kessie was just kind of becoming a battering ram. The minute Ferran Torres actually delivers a good ball, Kessie just kept on moving and good on him to move like that. And I think Kessie, believe it or not, again, does the job that he was brought to Barcelona to do yesterday, uh, this season. And unfortunately, that's not what Kool-Aid's want to see. But that's also, again, to put a cap on the, the price tag stuff, the financial situation that Barcelona are in. They did have to task, you know, Christensen as spoiled Kules with the free, the, the free transfer idea. But Kessie was a free transfer who was brought in to kind of do the job that he did yesterday. And he did it to good effect. So, you know, I, I think he winds up being a player that perfectly encapsulates the, the position that Barcelona were in offensively yesterday. And again, does his job. And that 1-0 score makes a lot of sense when I look at his performance. Yeah, it does. I mean, Kessie is who he is, and and what what you see is what you get with Kessie, right? But I feel like even prior to his to his uh, transfer, Barca was struggling very much with intensity and compactness and uh, all that vert- verticality and stuff. And I feel he was the type of player that you would put in to kind of plug those holes and kind of minimize the damage. And I think he does it pretty well. And the idea of Xavi kind of putting him next to Busquets and then you have Busquets pushing up and following Modric all over the place and and, and, and the high press, sustaining the high press through Busquets as well. And then you have Kessie in the back kind of doing, you know, damage control of some sorts. Uh, and he does it pretty well. He does that pretty well. And then he, on the opposite end, he's a true box-to-box kind of type of player where he can do the, the, his stuff in the back and then also he can do his stuff out of in front as well. And I feel like in that regard, he is exactly what he's meant to be in this system not more not less uh, of course sometimes yeah he struggles with ball control you can see that he's not exactly the player that will ease your build-up phase he's not a player that that will kind of give you this immense progression tools either but I, he's also not meant to be that and and in this system that we're seeing just now he has his use and his use is some as you said somewhat different from what we're kind of expecting to see or used to seeing from Barcelona. But in games like this one, I feel like his presence 
it, it does it does a lot of good, right? It, it doesn't really lend itself to 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 us completely controlling the game on the ball or maybe having this calm on the ball. Even though you know the the Serie A fans kept saying that he is that type of player too, that he can you know be secure in possession, that he, he doesn't lose the ball often. And granted, I've not really seen that much that side of him that much, but apparently it's also there so maybe we, we just have to find a way to kind of get that out of him too but at the moment he has his use a very specific use and while it, it's not always pretty it's not always in line with what we want to see potentially you know long term at least it, it helps it helps and i feel like it was a necessary necessary evil is, is, is that the right thing to say about him maybe it is for this barca team to kind of get over some of the most the, the, some of the biggest hurdles that they had to get over, which was, you know, in that in that off the ball phases where, where where we were just lacking, we were just poor, we had no defensive defensive awareness whatsoever, you know, no smell of danger, so to speak. And De Jong was particularly gu- guilty of that as well. And he's making strides, he's making improvements in that in that aspect. But Barca were always a team that that was that that didn't really have players who were defenders first. I, I talked about this a while back where you have this team full of technical technically brilliant players who who will give you everything in possession and and and, and a team where which whose players actually shine when they are in possession of the ball, but they didn't have players who were defenders first and who can smell danger and who could who could put out the fire, you know, even before it starts, so to speak. So I feel like Kessie in that sense, he can be that player. He's not always the perfect defender either, I guess. But 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 no one is apart from Araujo, apparently. But for what he is and what he's bringing to the team right now, I feel like he's still he's still doing his job, and that's that's for the short short term at least should be enough. Should be enough. Well, I think we've done more than enough on El Clasico this first leg, and with thirty five percent possession, I think we. I felt like Domagoy had handled a little bit more than thirty five percent possession in this game or in this this podcast. So, where can people find your your Substack? Maybe plug that today. It's called Barca Football. Just type that in in Google. I think that's the best way to find it. Uh, you can also check on my Twitter profile. I've, I've I have it pinned or somewhere in my profile. I'm not sure. Uh, should be in the description. Yeah, it is in the description. So yeah, just follow that. Yeah, me oh my, it's also in the show notes. So just go down the show notes and click on that and follow along with his Substack. And then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as well at the Barcelona Pod at Hilton D13 for me, closed Facebook group, TikTok, Patreon is how we keep making the shows. You can also listen to these without the ads over there on Patreon. And then uh, the Barcelona Podcast on YouTube as well, a huge part of the content that's put out there, including those five headlines. So if you wind up wanting to hear some repeat stuff between the five headlines and the podcast, of course, you could do both of those. And I've even kind of beefed up some of the images as well. And those stats that I mentioned, I even put those in visual form there on the YouTube channel. So most importantly, though, thanks so much for listening to the show. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.